Chapter Eleven of the Fortunate Youth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sonali Punja. The Fortunate Youth by William John Locke. Chapter Eleven. One morning, Paul, with a clump of papers in his hand, entered his pleasant private room at Rainscourt stepped briskly to the long cromwellian table placed in the window bay and sat down to his correspondence it was gusty outside as could be perceived by the shower of yellow beech leaves that slanted across the view but indoors a great fire flaming up the chimney a turkey carpet fading into beauty rich eighteenth-century mezzotints on the wall reposeful leather-covered chairs and a comfortable bookcase gave an atmosphere of warmth and coziness paul lit a cigarette and attacked a pile of unopened letters at last he came to an envelope thick and faintly scented bearing a crown on the flap he opened it and read dear mr savelli will you dine on saturday and help me entertain an eminent egyptologist i know nothing of egypt save shepherd's hotel and that i am afraid wouldn't interest him do come to my rescue yours sophie zobraska paul leaned back in his chair twiddling the letter between his fingers and looked smilingly out on the grey autumn rack of clouds there was a pleasant and flattering intimacy in the invitation pleasant because it came from a pretty woman flattering because the woman was a princess widow of a younger son of a royal balkan house she lived at chetwood park on the other side of morbury and was one of the great ones of those latitudes a real princess paul's glance travelling back from the sky fell upon the brass date indicator on the table it was marked the second of october on that day five years ago he had entered on his duties at drainscourt he laughed softly five years ago he was a homeless wanderer now princesses were begging him to rescue them from egyptologists with glorious sureness all his dreams were coming true thus we see our fortunate youth at eight-and-twenty in the heyday of success if he had strutted about under jane's admiring eyes like a peacock among doors he now walked serene a peacock among peacocks he wore the raiment frequented the clubs ate the dinners of the undeservingly rich and the deservingly great his charm and his self-confidence which a genius of tact saved from self-assertion carried him pleasantly through the social world his sympathetic intelligence dealt largely and strongly with the public affairs under his control he loved organizing persuading casting skilful nets his appeal for subscriptions was irresistible he had the magical gift of wringing a hundred pounds from a plutocrat with the air of conferring a graceful favor in aid of the mission to convert the jews 
he could have fleeced a synagogue. The societies and institutions in which the Colonel and Ursula Winwood were interested flourished amazingly beneath his touch. The girls' club in the Isle of Dogs, long since abandoned in despair by the young guardsmen, grew into a popular and sweetly-mannered nunnery. The central London home for the indigent blind, which had been languishing for support, in spite of Miss Winwood's efforts, found itself now in a position to build a much-needed wing. There was also, most wonderful and uh, most important of all, the Young England League, which was covering him with steadily increasing glory. Of this, much hereafter, but it must be remembered. Ursula complained that he left her nothing to do save attend dreary committee meetings, and even for these, Paul saved her all the trouble in hunting up information. She was a mere figurehead. Dearest lady, Paul would say, if you send me about my business, you will write me a character, won't you, saying that you are dismissing me for incorrigible efficiency? You know perfectly well, she would sigh, that I would be a lost, lone woman without you. Whereat Paul would laugh his gay laugh. At this period of his life, he had not a care in the world. The game of politics also fascinated him. A year or so after he joined the Winwoods, there was a general election. The Liberals, desiring to drive the old Tory from his lair, sent down a strong candidate to Morbury. There was a fierce battle, into which Paul threw himself heart and soul. He discovered he could speak. When he first found himself holding a couple of hundred villagers in the grip of his impassioned utterance, he felt that the awakening of England had begun. It was a delicious moment. As a canvasser, he performed prodigies of cajolery. Extensive paper mills, a hotbed of raging socialism, according to Colonel Winwood, defaced, in the Colonel's eyes, the outskirts of the little town. They are wrong guns to a man, said the Colonel despondently. Paul came back from among them with a notebook full of promises. How did you manage it? asked the Colonel. I think I got on to the poetical side of politics, said Paul. What the deuce is that? Paul smiled. An appeal to the imagination, said he. When Colonel Winwood got in, by an increased majority, in spite of the wave of liberalism that spread over the land, he gave Paul a gold cigarette case, and thenceforward admitted him into his political confidence. So, Paul became familiar with the lobby of the House of Commons, and with the subjects before the committees on which Colonel Winwood sat, and with the delicate arts of wire-pulling and intrigue, which appeared to him a monstrously fine diversion. There was also the matter of Colonel Winwood's speeches, which the methodical warrior wrote out laboriously beforehand and learnt by heart. There were sound, weighty pronouncements, to which the house listened with respect, but they lacked the flashes which lit enthusiasm. One day he threw the bundle of typescript across to Paul. See what you think of that. Paul saw and made daring penciled amendments and took it to the colonel. It is all very funny, 
said the latter, tugging his drooping moustache. But I can't say things like that in the house. Why not? asked Paul. If they heard me make an epigram, they would have a fit. Our side wouldn't. The government might. The government ought to have fits all the time until it expires in convulsions. But this is a mere dull agricultural question. The Board of Agriculture have brought it in, and it's such pernicious nonsense that I, as a country gentleman, have to speak against it. But couldn't you stick in my little joke about the pigs? asked Paul pleadingly. What is that? Colonel Winwood found the place in the script. I say that the danger of swine fever arising from this clause in the bill will affect every farmer in England. And I say, cried Paul eagerly, pointing to his note, if this clause becomes law, swine fever will rage through the land like a demoniacal possession. The myriad pigs of Great Britain, possessed of the devils of socialism, will be turned into garderine swine, hurtling down to destruction. You can show how they hurtle, like this. He flickered his hands. Do try it. Hmm, said Colonel Winwood. Sorely against his will, he tried it. To his astonishment, it was a success. The House of Commons, like Mr. Peter Magnus's friend, is easily amused. The exaggeration gave a cannonball's weight to his argument. The government dropped the clause. It was only a trivial part of a wide-reaching measure. The president of the Board of Agriculture saying gracefully that in the miracle he hoped to bring about, he had unfortunately forgotten the effect it might have on pigs. There was renewed laughter, but Colonel Winwood remained the hero of the half-hour and received the ecstatic congratulations of unhumorous friends. He might have defeated the government altogether. In the daily round of political life, nothing is so remarkable as the lack of sense of proportion. It was the Garderine swine that did it, they said. And that, said Colonel Winwood honestly, was my devil of a secretary. Thenceforward, the young wit and the fresh fancy of Paul played like a fountain over Colonel Winwood's and speeches. Look here, young man, said he one day. I don't like it. Sometimes I take your confounded suggestions because they happen to fit in. But I am actually getting the reputation of a light political comedian, and it won't do. Whereupon Paul, with a swift intuition, saw that in the case of a proud, earnest gentleman like Colonel Winwood, the tempting emendations of typescript would not do. In what Miss Winwood called his subtle Italian way, he induced his patron to discuss the speeches before the process of composition. These discussions, involving the swift rapier play of intelligences, Colonel Winwood enjoyed. They stimulated him magically. He sat down and wrote his speeches, delightfully unconscious of what in them was Paul and what was himself. And when he delivered them, he was proud of the impression he made upon the house. And so, as the years passed, Paul gained influence not only in the little circle of Drain's Court and Portland Palace, 
but also in the outer world. He was a young man of some note. His name appeared occasionally in the newspapers, both in connection with the Winwood charities and with the political machine of the Unionist Party. He was welcomed at London dinner tables and in country houses. He was a young man who would go far. For the rest, he had learned to ride and shoot and not to make mistakes about the genealogical relationships of important families. He had travelled about Europe, sometimes with the Winwoods, sometimes by himself. He was a man of cultivation and accomplishment. On his fifth anniversary, he sat gazing unseeingly at the autumn rack, the princess's letter in his hand, and letting his thought wander down the years. He marvelled how valiantly the stars in their courses had fought for him. Even against recognition, his life was charmed. Once, indeed, he met at the house in Portland Place a painter to whom he had posed. The painter looked at him keenly. Surely, we've met before. We have, said Paul with daring frankness. I remember it gratefully. But if you would forget it, I should still be more grateful. The painter shook hands with him and smiled. You may be sure I haven't the least idea what you're talking about. As for the theatre land, the lower walks in the profession to which Paul had belonged do not cross the paths of high political society. It lay behind him, far and forgotten. His position was secure. Here and there, an anxious mother may have been worried as to his precise antecedents, but Paul was too astute to give mothers overmuch cause for anxiety. He lived under the fascination of the great game. When he came into his kingdom, he could choose, not before. His destiny was drawing him nearer and nearer to it, he thought, with slow and irresistible force. In a few years, there would be parliament, office, power, the awakening from stupor of an England hypnotized by malign forces. He saw himself at the table in the now familiar house of green benches, thundering out an empire's salvation. If he thought more of the awakener than the awakening, it was because he was still the same little Paul Kegworthy to whom the Cornelian heart had brought the vision splendid in the scullery of the Bloodstone slum. The Cornelian heart still lay in his waistcoat pocket at the end of his watch chain. He also held a real princess's letter in his hand. A tap at the door aroused him from his daydream. There entered a self-effacing young woman with pencil and notebook. Are you ready for me, sir? Uh, not quite. Sit down for a moment, Miss Smithers. Or come up to the table, if you don't mind, and help me open these envelopes. Paul, you see, was a great man who commanded the services of a shorthand typist. To the mass of correspondence then opened and read, he added that which he had brought in from Colonel and Miss Winwood. From this, he sorted the few letters which it would be necessary to answer in his own handwriting, and laid them aside. Then, taking the great bulk, he planted himself on the hearthrug, with his back to the fire, and cigarette in mouth, dictated to the self-effacing young woman. 
she took down his words with anxious humility for she looked upon him as a god feared on olympian heights and what socially insecure young woman of lower middle-class england could do otherwise in the presence of a torturingly beautiful youth immaculately raimented who commanded in the great house with a smile more royal and debonair than that of the master thereof member of the parliament though he was and justice of the peace and lord of the manor and paul fresh from his retrospect looked at the girl's thin shoulders and sharp intent profile and wondered a little somewhat ironically he knew that she regarded him as a kind of god for reasons of caste yet she was the daughter of a mowbray piano tuner of unblemished parentage for generations she had never known hunger and cold and the real sting of poverty miss winwood herself knew more of drunken squalor he saw himself a ragged and unwashed urchin his appalling breeches supported by one brace addressing her in familiar terms and he saw her transfigured air of lofty disgust whereupon he laughed aloud in the middle of a most unhumorous sentence much to miss smithers astonishment when he had finished his dictation he dismissed her and sat down to his writing after a while miss winwood came in the five years had treated her lightly a whitening of the hair about her brows which really enhanced the comeliness of her florid complexion a few more lines at corners of eyes and lips were the only evidences of the touch of time's fingers as she entered paul swung round from his writing chair and started to his feet oh paul i said the twentieth for the disabled soldiers and sailors didn't i i made a mistake i'm engaged that afternoon i don't think so dearest lady said paul i am then you've told me nothing about it said paul the infallible i know she said meekly it's all my fault i never told you i have asked the bishop of rome to lunch and i can't turn him out at a quarter past two can i what date is there free together they bent over the engagement book and after a little discussion the new date was fixed i'm rather keen on dates today said paul pointing to the brass calendar why it's exactly five years since i entered your dear service said paul we've worked you like a galley slave and so i love your saying dear service she replied gently paul half sitting on the edge of the cromwellian table in the bay of the window laughed i could say infinitely more dearest lady if i were to let myself go she sat on the arm of a great leathern chair their respective attitudes signified a happy intimacy so long as you are contented my dear boy she said contented good heavens he waved a protesting hand you are ambitious of course said he what would be the good of me if i wasn't one of these days you'll be wanting to leave the nest and what shall we say so upwards paul too acute to deny the truth of his prophecy said i probably shall 
but i'll be the rarissima ave to whom the abandoned nest will always be the prime object of his life's consideration pretty said miss winwood it's true i'm sure of it she said pleasantly besides if you didn't leave the nest and make a name for yourself you wouldn't be able to carry on our work my brother and i you see are of the older generation you of the younger you are the youngest woman i know paul declared i shan't be in a few years and my brother is a good deal older than i well i can't get into parliament right away said paul for one thing i couldn't afford it we must find you a nice girl with plenty of money she said half in jest oh please don't i should detest the sight of her by the way shall you want me on saturday evening no unless it would be to take miss durning in to dinner now miss durning being an elderly ugly heiress it pleased miss winwood to be quizzical he looked at her in mock reproof dearest lady that you are i don't feel safe in your hands just now i shall dine with the princess on saturday an enigmatic smile flitted across ursula winwood's clear eyes what does she want you for to entertain an egyptologist assured paul he waved his hand toward the letter on the table there it is in black and white i suppose for the next few days you'll be cramming hard it would be the polite thing to do wouldn't it said paul blandly miss winwood shook her head and went away and paul happily resumed his work in very truth she was to him the dearest of ladies the princess obraska was standing alone by the fireplace at the end of the long drawing-room when paul was announced on saturday evening she was a distinguished-looking woman in the late twenties brown-haired fresh-complexioned strongly and at the same time delicately featured her dark blue eyes veiled by lashes smiled on him lazily as he approached and lazily too her left arm stretched out the palm of the hand downward and she did not move he kissed her knuckles in orthodox fashion it is very good of you to come mr savelli she said in a sweetly foreign accent and leave your interesting company at rainscote any company without you princess is chaos said paul grand flatterer Wah said she ce que vous êtes irrésistible princesse surtout dans ce costume là she touched his arm with an ostrich feather fan when it comes to massacring languages mr savelli let me be the assassin i laid the tribute of my heart at your feet in the most irreproachable grammar said paul but with the accent of john bull that's the only thing of john bull you have about you for the sake of my years i must give you lessons you will find me such a pupil as never teacher had in the world before when shall we begin oh calend grec ah she put her hands to her ears listen Coo-voo-et-a-farmer, she said. 
Goo at a farmer, Paul repeated parrot wise. Is that better? A little. I see that the Greek calends have begun, he said. Michon, you have caught me in a trap, she said, and they both laughed. From which entirely foolish conversation it may be gathered that between our fortunate youth and the princess some genial sun had melted the icy barriers of formality. He had known her for eighteen months, ever since she had bought Chetwood Park and settled down as the great personage of the countryside. He had met her many times, both in London and in Morbury. He had dined in state at her house. He had shot her partridges. He had danced with her. He had sat out dances with her, notably on one recent June night in a London garden where they lost themselves for an hour in the discussion of the relative parts that love played in a woman's life and in a man's. The princess was French, ancient regime of the blood of the Colony, and she had married in the French practical way the Prince of Brasca, in whose career the only satisfactory incident history has to relate is the mere fact of his early demise. The details were less exhilarating. The poor little princess, happily widowed at one and twenty, had shivered the idea of love out of her system for some years. Then, as is the way of women, she regained her curiosities. Great lady of enormous fortune, she could have satisfied them, had she so chosen, with the large cynicism of a Catherine of Russia. She could also, had she so chosen, have married one of a hundred sighing and decorous gentlemen. But with none of them had she fallen ever so little in love, and without love she determined to try no more experimentations. Her determination, however, did not involve surrender of interest in the subject. Hence the notable discussion on the June night. Hence, perhaps, after a few other meetings of a formal character, the prettily intimate invitation she had sent to Paul. They were still laughing at the turn of the foolish conversation when the other guests began to enter the drawing-room. First came Edward Doone, the Egyptologist, a good-looking man of forty, having the air of a spruce dawn with a pretty young wife, Lady Angela Doone. Then Count Lavretsky of the Russian Embassy and Countess Lavretsky. Lord Bantry, a young Irish peer, with literary ambitions, and a Mademoiselle de Crissy, a convent intimate of the princess, and her paid companion, completed the small party. Dinner was served at a round table, and Paul found himself between Lady Angela Doon, whom he took in, and the Countess Lavretsky. Talk was general and amusing. As Doon did not make, or apparently did not expect, anyone to make any reference to King K or Amenhotep, or Ramses, names vaguely floating in Paul's brain, but talked in a sprightly way about the French stage and the beauty of Norwegian fjords. Paul perceived that the princess's alleged reason for her invitation was but a shallow pretext. Dude did not need any entertainment at all. Lady Angela, however, 
spoke of her dismay at the prospect of another winter in the desert and drew a graphic little sketch of the personal discomforts to which egyptologists were subjected i always thought egyptologists and such like learned folk were stuffy and snuffy with goggles and ragged old beards laughed paul your husband is a revelation yes he's quite human isn't he she said with an affectionate glance across the table he is dead keen on his work but he realizes as many of his stuffy and snuffy confrères don't that there is a jolly vibrating fascinating modern world in which one lives i'm glad to hear you say that about the modern world said paul what is lady angela saying about the modern world asked the princess separated from paul's partner only by counter lavretsky singing paeans in praise of it said paul what is there in it so much to rejoice at asked the diplomatist in a harsh voice he was a man prematurely old and looked at the world from beneath heavy lizard-like eyelids not only is it the best world we've got but it's the best world we've ever had cried paul i don't know any historical world which would equal the modern and as for the prehistoric well professor doon can tell us as a sphere of amenable existence said doon with a smile give me chetwood park and piccadilly that is mere hedonism said count lavretsky you happen like us all here to command the creature comforts of modern wealthy conditions which i grant are exceedingly superior to those commanded by the great emperors of ancient times but we are in a small minority and even if we are not is that all we have a finer appreciation of individualities said the princess we lead a wider intellectual life we are in instant touch practically with the thought of the habitable globe and with the emotive force of mankind said paul what is that asked lady angela why paul after the first glance of courtesy at the speaker should exchange a quick glance with the princess would be difficult to say it was instinctive as instinctive as the reciprocal flash of mutual understanding i think i know but tell us she said paul challenged defined it as the swift wave of sympathy that surged over the earth a famine in india a devastating earthquake in mexico a bid for freedom on the part of an oppressed population a deed of heroism at sea each was felt within practically a few moments emotionally in an english french or german village our hearts were throbbing continuously at the end of telegraph wires and you call that pleasure asked count lavretsky it isn't hedonism at any rate said paul i call it life said the princess don't you she turned to doon i think what mr savelli calls the emotive force of mankind helps to balance out our personal emotions said he oh isn't it rather a wear and tear of the nervous system laughed his wife it seems to me said count lavretsky 
Perhaps being a Russian, I am more primitive and envy a nobleman of the time of the pharaoh who never heard of devastations in Mexico, did not feel his heart called upon to pulsate at anything beyond his own concerns. But he, in his wisdom at his little world, was vanity and was depressed. We moderns, with our infinitely bigger world and our infinitely greater knowledge, have no more wisdom than the Egyptian, and we see that the world is all the more vanity and all the more overwhelmed with despair. But, said Paul, but, cried the princess. Both laughed and paused. Paul bowed with a slight gesture. I am not overwhelmed with despair, the princess continued. Neither am I, said Paul. I'm keeping my end up wonderfully, said Lady Angela. I am in a nest of optimists, Count Lavretsky groaned. But was it not you, Lady Angela, who talked of wear and tear? That was only to contradict my husband. What is all this about? asked the Countess Lavretsky, who had been discussing opera with Lord Bantry and Mademoiselle de Cress. Doon scientifically crystallized the argument. It held the octet, while men-servants in powder and gold-laced livery offered poor Zobraska, a subtle creation of the chef. Lord Bantry envied the contemplative calm which unexciting circumstances allowed the literary ancient. Mademoiselle de Cress advanced the feminist view in favour of the modern world. The talk became the light and dancing interplay of opinion and paradox common to thousands of twentieth-century dinner-tables. All the same, said Count Lavretsky, they wear you out, these emotive forces. Nobody is young nowadays. Youth is a lost art. On the contrary, cried Mademoiselle de Cressy in French, everybody is young today. This pulsation of the heart keeps you young it is the day of the young woman of forty-five count lavretsky who was fifty-nine twirled a grey moustache i am one of the few people in the world who do not regret their youth i do not regret mine with its immaturity its follies and subsequent headaches i would sooner be the scornful philosopher of sixty than the credulous lover of twenty. He always talks like that, said the countess to Paul. But when he met me first, he was thirty-five, and, she laughed, and now, voila, for him there is no difference between twenty and sixty. Expliquez moi, sir. It is very simple, declared Paul. In this century, the thirties, forties, and fifties don't exist. You are either twenty or sixty. I hope I shall always be twenty, said the princess lightly. Do you find your youth so precious, then? asked Count Lavretsky. More than I ever did, and again met Paul's eyes. This time she flushed faintly as she held them for a fraction of a second. He had time to catch a veiled soft gleam, intimate and disquieting. For some time he did not look again in her direction. When he did, he met in her eyes 
only the lazy smile with which she regarded all and sundry. Later in the evening, she said to him, I'm glad you opposed Lavretsky. He makes me shiver. He was born old and wrinkled. He has never had a thrill in his life. And if you don't have thrills when you're young, you can't expect to have them when you're old, said Paul. He would ask, what was the good of thrills? You don't expect me to answer, princess. We know, because we are young. They stood laughing in the joy of their full youth, a splendid couple, some distance away from the others, ostensibly inspecting a luminous little chima on the wall. The princess loved it as the bright jewel of her collection, and Paul, with a sense of beauty and knowledge of art, loved it too. Yet, instead of talking of the picture, they talked of Lavretsky, who was looking at them sardonically from beneath his heavy eyelids. End of chapter 11